Well, I'm going to spend a few weeks uh, going through a small series, uh, and when I say small, I mean a few weeks. Um, and I've entitled the series, A World of Knockoffs. I don't know if I, about you, but um, I grew up, grew up in a family that enjoyed um, name brand cereal, and uh, we had some neighbors that actually worked at Post, and they would bring me some you know, Frankenberries and fruit, uh, fruit roll-ups. And, and I remember one time my mom brought home fruit rings. And I was like, no, we're not going there. You know, you kind of get entitled as a kid, right? It, I'm not going to eat this knockoff cereal. Are you kidding me? Like, I've been, I've been enjoying the spoils of, of the sugary goodness at Post. I don't want any of this stuff. And there's a, a world of, of knockoffs around us when it comes to food, entertainment. Um, you can find KFC. If you go to China, you can find OFC. You can get, get your coffee at Starbucks. Or in other countries, you can go to Sunbucks. And a lot of times, someone that has developed something really great, it doesn't take long for someone to come along, change the logo a little bit, change the, the ingredients a little bit, and try to profit off of that development and idea and product. I want to spend some time thinking about this from a spiritual standpoint. Um, My sermon today is one of many, as I said, and and it's going to be in the realm of false conversions. Because I believe that in in the, the battle that we have with the enemy, we are fighting something of, of a knockoff, in a sense, that uh, it challenges and threatens the church. Um, if you have a fake uh, conversion, or you have a false gospel, then there is a great threat to God's people and those who we are evangelizing to try to win to Christ. And so I want to spend a couple of weeks talking about that. And as I said, today we're going to look at a story in Acts chapter 8 about what is a false conversion. What is a fake or disgenuine conversion to Christ? Uh, there's a story of a man named Aaron Dallas in Colorado. And he had a strange medical condition that he discovered. He started to develop headaches and sores on his head. He ignored the symptoms for a while until he started to find blood on his pillow and he lost a lot of sleep. He went to a doctor and the doctors told him that he had shingles. Until the, pro- the problems persisted, he believed them and was treated for those shingles. But the problems continued, the bleeding and the intensity and pain uh, progressed until finally Aaron went and got another opinion after thinking that he was literally going crazy by hearing scratching and clawing in his brain. The truth was is that Aaron Dallas did not have shingles. He had bot flies that had literally grown in his skull. They, are a, they come from a mosquito that he was bit by a, um, uh, in a foreign country. And he literally had a parasite growing in his head. That, that he uh, was, was being plagued with that was feeding off of him. I know that that sounds disgusting, 
But I think that there is a spiritual lesson in, in such a story. Because there is a great danger in our church today where the evidences are very clear that people do not truly know Jesus Christ. And they are ignoring those symptoms. They are having those symptoms misdiagnosed. And it could lead to their destruction. And so I hope today to help you see through the word of God that if you're ignoring physical evidence in your life that something is spiritually wrong, even though you have uh, made this public profession of faith in Christ, maybe you have uh, grown up in the church and, and you just thought that the process of being a believer was something that came natural to you. Whatever that might be, I hope today that you will see from Acts chapter 8 that there is the reality of false conversion in our world and in the church. God's word gives us compelling evidence in these things, not just in Acts chapter 8. You'll remember with me in Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus warns his disciples by saying in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now church, this should grip us. This should grip us to be very honest with ourselves and really evaluate in our own lives the genuineness of our faith in Christ. Because there will be people on the day of judgment when Christ returns that will literally be surprised when Christ condemns them to eternal hell. Because they had been faithful to do religious things and even spiritual things. And yet they never did it in the right frame of belief and trust in Christ alone. And it is a scary thing to consider that reality today. For ourselves, for our children, for our family members. Consider the fact that Counterfeit money is spreading across the world in some form or fashion today. That, that counterfeit money may be exchanged at a store. Thinking that it's genuine, it's then passed on to a customer again to be used for some gas. And that, that station owner then uses it to pay one of his employees who goes and buys groceries. The circulation of that counterfeit money has not been detected and therefore it exists and operates with some goodness as real and authentic until it finally circulates its way back to the bank when the bank identifies itself as counterfeit and useless pieces of paper that have no value. That is the reality that we live in in our day to day. As Satan seeks out to destroy and deceive people into believing that they love Jesus Christ when they've really truly never trusted in him. And so my, my plan and, and purpose for, for my time today is to help you see in Acts chapter 8 an example, I believe, as a, 
a disgenuine, a lack of true repentance and faith in Christ. Therefore, our, our study today of Simon will be one of a false conversion. Now, let me kind of catch us up with the book of Acts. Acts was written by Luke. Acts is the story of the power of the Holy Spirit in effect upon the earth in the early church after Jesus Christ ascends, sending out his disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit with a wave of conversion and explosive growth in the early church. Starting in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we read, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we see that literally happen by the power of the Holy Spirit through the faithfulness of disciples as these uh, apostles and leaders of the church spread out. As persecution begins to rain down fire upon the early church, more spreading and traveling and retreating of, of, of the early church in, in, in that uh, area of the world, God uses even that retreat and persecution to be the thing in which he spreads the gospel. The Holy Spirit brings about great effect. Salvation is uh, happening in the thousands, in the three thousands, in the five thousands, and as, as uh, the Holy Spirit brings about a great effect through the, the preaching of the gospel. But while there's always great work and effect with the gospel message and the kingdom work of God, there will always be satanic attack. And we see that constantly in the book of Acts. As God's people are trying to be faithful, Satan is in opposition continuously to undo what God is doing. Now, as a message of hope, he always fails. Right? He always fails. The Lord is always victorious in every type and, and, and a, a, a plan of attack. Let me give you some examples. Starting in just Acts chapter 8, in verses 1 through 4, just to kind of lead us up to our passage today, we see the, the famous passage where uh, in chapter 7, Stephen, the faithful servant of the Lord, is stoned. And we read at the end of chapter 7 into verse 8, that as literally Stephen is dying, verse eight, uh, chapter 8 verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. Well, we know that, that from this point forward, Saul begins to then uh, bring great persecution upon, upon the church in Jerusalem, it says. And all the people are scattering through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Does that sound familiar? Jesus said, you will go to the far reaches of the earth, through Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, here is the scattering of the church. It says in verse 2 that devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Here you see two things. You see the power of the work of the Lord while the Satan and his enemies are attacking the church. And, and what happens with Saul? Well, we know from chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 that Saul is working as an enemy, but we know that the Lord gets the victory with Saul. That he saves Saul, that he calls Saul from being this great oppressor of the church to being the great ambassador of the church. And the Lord gains his victory. 
verses 4 down to verse 8, again we see Philip going into Samaria. Now those, it says, were scattered about, went preaching the word. Philip goes to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what, Paul, uh, to what was said by Philip when he had heard him. And when they heard him, they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had, had had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip goes to Samaria and he lands there. Philip is, is a, was a deacon and, and a servant of the church. He goes and, and, and kind of transitions to become an evangelist. And he's sharing the gospel. He's going out. Following the crowds and the people of persecution, he is spreading out faithfully as God had commanded to Samaria. And what's happening in Samaria? Satan has taken its root in Samaria. Literally, the Bible says that there's this, that he literally enters the scene with great demon possession of people. And as he begins to preach the gospel... And, and, and proclaim the truth of the gospel, the Bible says that literally unclean, unclean spirits, demons are crying out with loud voices coming out of these people. Those who had been crippled by these demons and were lame were now healed. Again, the power of the gospel in the midst of the conflict of satanic and demonic presence in the town and the, and the, the region of Samaria. So this is all, as I want you to see, a work of the enemy. Because false conversion is a work of our enemy. And we have to understand that. And I'm going to tell you that there is no greater joy in my heart as a young youth pastor many, many years ago to proclaim a very similar message to this and begin to see, and begin to see uh, young families, even adults and young children who had grown up in church and thought that, that just by adopting the gospel, by hearing the gospel, by going forward as a child, that that, that was all that was necessary to, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I began to see the, 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 the work of the Lord uh, go forth and, and we saw kids saved by really truly acknowledging the depth of their sin and their need for Christ alone to save them. And it's, a, it's, it's my joy again to, to proclaim this reality because we are uh, in, in a culture that is just, they're, they're, they're masked, they're, they're deceived by the fact they're deceived by the fact that so many people that sit in a church and are religious in certain days of the week have attained salvation for themselves. And they're deceived. They're living in their deception. It's a work of the enemy to deceive in such a way. And so now we get to our passage with Philip. Philip now is, is there and he encounters a man named Simon. And Simon comes on the scene and the Bible tells us that in, in addition to Samaria's influence with demonic activity, specifically that demonic activity manifests itself in the practicing of magic. And Simon is a practitioner of magic in the city where Philip was. And if you'll notice in verse 9, he amazed the people of Samaria. 
He amazed them so much that they considered him as somebody great who possessed the power of God. Now, I want you to understand that in the way that this is written, the amazement of Simon and his magical arts is not illusionism. He's not an illusionist. For our older congregation members, he's not David Copperfield, okay? He's, he's not, um, there's another guy that I could not think of, but that there's, a, there's a lot of different illusionists out there, sleight of hand magicians. He, he's not practicing such things. The Bible actually tells us in the book of Acts alone, just as, as, as that story progresses, That magic in this day is demonic and occultic. It is literally resting upon the evil and demonic presence of Satan himself. Look with me or or consider with me uh, some examples. In Acts chapter 13, we see that Paul and Barnabas arrive on their missionary journey to to the island of Cyprus. And there they encounter another magician named Elmas. And Elmas opposes the preaching of God's word there. And literally Paul rebukes this man as he's trying to share the gospel with people there. And literally Paul calls this man the son of the devil and the enemy of all righteousness. What he's declaring for us and showing us is that these are not magic tricks. This is evil practice. This is devilish work. In the consideration of magic that was happening. So in Acts chapter 8, we see the presence of magic in Samaria. Acts chapter 13, we see the presence of magic in Cyprus. And in Acts chapter 19, we see the presence of magic in in Ephesus. Paul was ministering there and teaching in Ephesus. He encounters a demon-possessed people there. And he shows the power of God over evil, healing them. And a a great act of repentance sweeps over the city of Ephesus. And among that great power of the gospel going forth and this great revival that happens in Ephesus, you know what happens? People begin to repent in such a way that they have a book-burning party. And in that book-burning party, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 19 that they are literally burning their books of magic arts. Folks, those are books that contain spells and incantations. Things that rely and and, and depend upon not the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the work of Satan himself. And so now we come again then to Simon the Magician. Therefore then depending upon the very power of Satan, this limited power that Satan has, and yet practicing magic in the city and amazing the people in such a way that he literally becomes like a religious figure to them. They are literally following uh, Simon as a religious teacher. Not a religion that looks to the Lord, but a religion that depends upon incantations and spells that are evil. And what happens? Once again, you have the conflict of the power of the gospel in opposition to the work of Satan himself. And Philip enters into the city 
And in verse 12, it tells us that they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, you need to remember that. Remember, the people of Samaria, twice we're told, were amazed at Philip as a magician. And now, or excuse me, Simon as a magician. And now Philip comes upon the scene, and he's preaching the gospel in the kingdom of God, and he's seeing a great work among the people in Samaria, and in this Samaritan city, and what happens? He becomes amazed. That's very important for us to understand at this point. But as we continue to read this story and we understand, we must understand that that Simon truly does not believe in the gospel. And we're going to look at some reasons why in just a minute. Because the work of, of Satan himself is to deceive and corrupt and lie to us so that we might live in such a state where we think we're following Christ. But we're truly not trusting in Him. We can always uh, be in such a state where we are being religious and even doing religious things, but we have no relationship with Christ. And one of the ways that we begin to see this manifest in in, uh, Simon's life is his thirst and his quest for power and amazement. Remember, the people in Samaria thought that he was a great man of power. And upon it says in verse 13, seeing the signs and the great miracles performed, he was amazed. He wasn't amazed at the word. He was amazed at what Philip was able to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this this way in which Simon lived and functioned as a religious and magical teacher and, 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 and uh, performing great miracles and amazing the people. This was a form of, uh, of income uh, and, and power that, that began to grow in him. And when he began to see Philip doing even greater things by the true power of the Lord, it left him amazed and wanting more. And so church, we have to understand that this, the reality of false conversion in our, in our church and in our world is a work of the enemy. That even Simon's attitude reflects the influence of the enemy. In verse 9, we see that, that he is a, a self-promoter. Because it tells us that before the people thought Simon was great, he himself was telling people, How great he was. Look at verse 9. That he was saying that he himself was somebody great. Let me tell you something right now. If the Lord Jesus Christ lives in you, he humbles you to a point that you don't have to promote yourself. You don't have to... if, If the Lord wants to honor you and glorify you by glorifying himself through you, then people will think that he's great, not that you're great. And Simon is here promoting himself, seeking power, seeking prestige among the people. 
Not reflecting the attitude of someone who has been humbled by Christ, but instead reflecting an attitude of arrogance and self-righteousness. And church, we have to understand that in our world today, we still live in a culture of people that want to be religious and they want to be culturally spiritual, but they don't want to trust in Christ alone for their salvation. They want the blessings of the kingdom of the gospel, but they don't want to live in such a way that they are surrendered to Christ. Which is why we understand that, that Simon demonstrates what I would call a wrong faith. A wrong faith. We see that he believed as Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And as, he, as Philip preached, the Bible tells us, Luke tells us very specifically, he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And the people were baptized, both men and women. And then it says, even Simon himself believed and after was baptized and continued with Philip. What's interesting is it doesn't say that, that Simon believed the message. It just said he believed. And that's very important because the people believed the preaching of the good news about the kingdom. But it seems as if Luke does not include the belief of Simon in that he literally, there is a division between verses 12 and 13. So it just says Simon himself believed, but it doesn't say he believed in what? It also doesn't say Philip and, or Simon and all the people believe the preaching of the good news of the kingdom. And I think that's intentional. Because in verse 13 at the conclusion, we see the amazement of Simon with the miracles performed and the signs that were occurring. Simon was visually engaged in the power of God, but he was not volitionally changed by it. Because the truth of the matter is, is that we can understand the, the, even the words of the message. We can understand the, the, the words of the gospel and the, the history of the Bible. We can have an intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is as a historical figure and never be changed by him. Intellectual belief is simply affirming facts about Jesus existing as a human. Believing facts that he died and that he rose from the grave. But yet your factual belief does not impact you. It does not change you. It doesn't allow you to live day by day resting in him. Intellectual belief does not save you. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us in James chapter 2. James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So if you have an intellectual knowledge of Jesus and that's all you have, you're literally on the same level as the demons who cried out when Jesus entered into their presence. They know who Jesus is. Similarly, we could say that emotional belief and faith does not save you. It's clear that Simon is passionate about the power of God. He's not a passionate about God himself. His passion for power leads Simon to profess publicly a faith in Christ by being baptized like the rest of the Samaritans. But it seems as if he's more enamored with the power and not the Lord. 
As I said, verse 9 tells us that Simon amazed the people. Verse 11, the Samaritans listen to Simon because he amazes them. And then verse 13, now Simon is amazed himself at that power. And I believe that in the church today, many people are caught up in emotional belief. The emotion of, of, of seeing a, a work of the Spirit in a, in a church setting or in a camp setting. And, and, and we get caught up in that. And, and, and we, we come, uh, and, and really preachers are really bad um, about stirring the pot of emotionalism. So that we have long extended invitations where we ask students and and, and adults to to respond in such a way. And when the preacher doesn't see a response, he elongates the the verse and the the song so that, that he gives more people time. And oftentimes what we're just doing is stirring the emotional pot. Emotional, Emotional belief does not save us. We can get caught up in in the experience and the circumstances and never truly believe in Christ, to trust in Him, to be broken over our sins. Folks, you can have chills up your back and down your arms. That's not the Holy Spirit moving upon you. You're just cold or sick. I'm reminded of the, the day that I proposed to my wife. I made the mistake of of not doing it in a private setting with, with me and her in a park or at a gazebo or around the lake, I decided that I was going to ask my wife to marry me in front of 50 plus of her, of her sorority sisters at a formal where I literally, uh, they surrounded her in a big uh, formal circle that they had where they passed a candle around. It sounds really weird and, and ritualistic, but it was a simply just a sorority thing that they did. And I entered into the middle of that thing and got down on one knee and proposed to her. Now, do you think she felt the pressure? Absolutely. She could have easily been caught up in the emotion and the pressure of being like, well, all my friends are standing around me. I guess I'll say yes. Thankfully, she didn't respond in that way. 20 years of marriage has proven that. She's supposed to say amen, but it's all right. We can get caught up in emotional belief. We can get caught up in believing that Christ is, uh, is, is, is worthy to be believed in because he gives us spiritual benefit. But intellectual and emotional belief does not save because we are not turning away from our sin and surrendering to Christ as Lord. That's why the truth of the scriptures teach us that trusting Christ fully for our salvation is necessary. In the Bible, the Bible tells us that our heart has to believe in Christ The heart being the central hub of our person. It controls our minds and our emotions and our will. So if we believe with our heart upon Christ for salvation, it will affect our mind in the way that we think. It will affect our emotions in the way that we feel. It affects our will and the choices that we make. In Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 5, the Bible says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. And whose heart turns away from the Lord. If you trust in your own strength for salvation. 
If you trust in your own worthiness for salvation, then you're not believing in Christ alone for your salvation. True or false, can you believe the facts about Christ, that he died, rose from the grave, came to save sinners, and yet your heart can be turned away from the Lord? Yes. Yes, you can. Because you're not resting in him. You can just be impressed by him. And so Jeremiah chapter 17 tells us, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God knows each one of our hearts. He knows if our hearts belong to him or not. And our all-knowing, all-omniscient God can see if we have truly believed in Christ with our heart. Believing with our heart, therefore, affecting our will. That's why in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Church, believing with our heart can also be called faith. Faith is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation realizing our need for him, understanding the depth of our sin and the lostness and the depravity that we live in before Christ, knowing that we can never do anything to attain salvation and therefore finding our sole hope and purpose in him, trusting that he has accomplished all that's necessary for peace with God, for justification from sin, for rest, for eternity and forgiveness in him. But not only is faith necessary, but repentance is necessary. Repentance is necessary. A wrong faith is intellectual and emotional faith. A real faith is a a faith that is trusting fully in Christ as you repent of your sin. Simon never understood the reality of his sin. He never looked at himself as a power-hungry guy because we continue to read this story. He's enamored with the power of the Holy Spirit to the very end. Look with me in verse 14. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of the Lord, they sent to them Peter and John, who came and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them yet, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. And now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Right there we stop. What is he interested in? He's interested in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's interested in doing what he's seen Peter and John do. He is still overwhelmed, not in a repentant state, knowing that he was hungry for power, that he was a self-boasting, arrogant promoter, but instead, he's still so bound to sin that he doesn't show true repentance. He's hungry for power, he's hungry for fortune, he's hungry for fame. And he had already been baptized. Many in churches today call themselves Christians are no different. 
They don't think anything's wrong with them, just like our bot fly guy. And then we begin to go and, and, and realize something's going on. We've ignored the problem long enough. We might go to someone that gives us poor advice. Oh, you're a Christian. I saw you walk the aisle when you were seven years old. I saw, I was there, I watched you. Folks, if you have lived any time at all as a Christian, you know that it does not matter if a person has made a commitment to Christ or not, visually, if he's not made that commitment or she's not made that commitment to Christ internally. That's the truth of the matter. Do you see the work of Christ manifested and, 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 and visible in their life? The Bible tells us that Simon, or shows us that Simon never denied himself. The Bible tells us that Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And denying yourself is realizing your sinful nature of being, uh, 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 that's in your human nature and denying those passions and lusts for the things of the world that are in direct opposition to the things of God. So I would be more encouraged in reading this story with Simon if he was so in, uh, uh, amazed by the power of the Holy Spirit that fell on the, on the disciples or came from the disciples and fell upon the people, and he was praising and glorifying God for all that God was doing, not wanting to power himself. And so when we understand true faith, real faith, genuine faith, it's complete trust in, in Christ alone as we live a life repenting from the things which Christ detests, our sinfulness. The lusts of the world turning away from the things, and turning back to God. A great example of this is Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 21. Matthew chapter 19. Just hold your place there. Let's look at this passage. It's familiar to us. Shouldn't be that many pages away. Matthew chapter 19. Look at verse 16. And behold, a man came to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And he said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what do I still lack? Immediately, if I could pause right there for just a second, the rich young ruler has no awareness of his sin. He literally thinks that he has kept those commandments. Do you see that? That we are so self-deceived in our lives that we think that we have obeyed the commandments in that way. He knew that those commandments applied in every moment, every day of his life. And he says, I've kept those commandments. What do I lack? A lack of self-awareness of sin. I continue. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. 
And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now look, Jesus is not telling you in this parable that if you want to follow Christ, go sell all of your possessions. What he's telling you to do is turn away from your idols and the things which keep you from following him. If you are so... uh, If you are so enamored with the things that you have that they are a God to you, they are an idol to you, then you do need to sell those things. Because the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That sin will keep you from following and and loving Christ the way that he deserves to be loved. Repentance is turning from your, your lustful desires of sin, turning from the practices of sin, hating sin, and turning to Christ fully for salvation. The rich young ruler could not do that. And what a powerful message for us in the, in the theme of repentance. He could not turn away from sin. And so we come to evaluate your own life and heart. Have you fully and completely trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? I'm going to stop there because I will go another 45 minutes on the last two points. I want you to consider and examine yourself. The Bible tells us that we are to evaluate our faith. The Bible tells us that we are to look at what Christ has called us to believe and trust in and examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And my prayer and my hope that the Lord, by the work of the Holy Spirit, would convict you in such a way if you truly don't know him. My testimony is that I was Simon the magician. That the Lord had convicted me in college that regardless of me walking an aisle as a kid, regardless of of my former preacher's wife telling my mom, one day your son will be a minister of the gospel, I was lost up until my years of college. And the Lord used a lot of different scenarios in my life to bring me to a realization that Christ was not my Savior and Lord. He was someone that I admired. He was someone that I wanted to believe in because my parents wanted me to believe in. But he had not someone that I was trusting in for my salvation. And so my testimony is that I was a false convert until Christ saved me. And my prayer for you is that you would examine yourselves based on these things we've read today. Are you trusting Christ fully alone for your salvation? Are you turning from sin because you detest it and hate it? And because Christ is worthy of our repentance and our faith? And if not, I would just encourage you, don't allow pride and embarrassment to stop you from turning your life over to Christ and trusting in him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, God, for uh, the truth of your word today. God, the the story of Simon the magician is, um, it's a powerful uh, reminder to us, God, of the deception that exists in our world, the work of, of your enemy. Satan himself trying to deceive the minds and blinding the minds of unbelievers, as 2 Corinthians 4 tells us. 
And Father, my, my greatest desire is this, our, our people here at Redemption, those that might be listening online, would see and know Christ. That they would forego any pride or embarrassment that they may have been clinging to for so long because they have realized even in a previous moment that they did not know Jesus and, and they need to f- confess him as Lord. Father, it is a, a difficult and oftentimes um, unclear task to try to understand when and, 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 and where we might have been converted. And so we ask for grace and mercy in those times as we evaluate ourselves. But we ask, Father, that your work of your spirit would be so great that you would remove any deception that might exist among our people. That you would help people to trust in Christ because of their great love for your son, not because other people want them to love your son. Or because of some social pressure, Father, that they may feel from their environment around them. And we pray, Father, that you would give them a great faith to believe in Christ and a repentant heart to turn from sin and that they would rest in him fully for their salvation. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. to our time of, of the Lord's Supper. And this, this time is a, 